0: Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music, episode 19, entitled Electrofunk, part 1. the show. My name is Chad Wilson, filling in for the time being for Paul Shiki. If you're listening to these episodes in order, you know that Paul is taking a break to focus on his screenwriting. So being a fan of the show and not wanting to see it end so soon, I volunteered to take it over for a while. A quick background on me. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm a web developer. I've been a fan of electronic music for a long time and been in a few bands playing all kinds of music. Over the years, I've developed an interest in vintage synthesizers and the history of music. I'm new to podcasting, so please give me a few episodes to get in the groove of things. Before we get started, I'd just like to thank Paul for contributing so much of his time up to this point in creating this podcast. I now know how much work it takes to develop each episode in terms of research, recording, and post-production. I'd also like to thank all of you who have made donations to keep this show alive. Being new to podcasting, I didn't realize some of the costs involved with licenses and that sort of thing, and they aren't insignificant. I've also spent money out of my own pocket purchasing recording equipment and books, so if you like the show, please consider making a donation through the website or our Facebook page. If you can't make a monetary contribution, I understand, but please tell a friend about the podcast or simply like us on Facebook or share our links on Twitter, Reddit, or whatever social media site you use. Now on to the show. Electrofunk, also known as Electro Boogie or simply Electro, is a style of music originally developed in the early 1980s that features a mix of drum machines, predominantly the Roland TR-808 drum machine, synthesizers, rapping, vocoders and talk boxes, and sampling. The term electro can be a bit confusing because other genres of music are also referred to as electro, including electro clash, electro house, electro swing, electro industrial, dark electro, and others. Also, this style of music was known at the time by a variety of names, including hip hop, dance, disco, electric boogie, and freestyle. And then in the 2000s, there was an electro revival of sorts, which is sometimes referred to as New Electro. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll use the term electro when referring to electro funk, this hybrid of hip-hop and post-disco electronic music that grew out of the Bronx in the 1980s, with tempos usually in the 100 to 130 BPM range. Electro became mainstream with Afrika Bambaataa's Planet Rock in 1982, but its origins go back a few years to the death of disco and the evolution of dance music that followed. Let's get right into some Proto-Electro with D-Train's first single, You're the One for Me, which was popular in dance clubs in
1: 1981. With the love I have inside of me, we can turn this world around. We can live
2: through all eternity, and we never touch the ground. We'll take a chance to ride a stop to a place that's
0: That was D-Train's You're the One for Me, released on Prelude Records. Prelude was a New York-based record label that released a lot of early electro music. Another early Prelude release from which the term electrofunk is originally derived is On a Journey, I Sing the Funk Electric by Electric Funk. Electric Funk was shortened to Electro Funk following the arrival of Electrophonic Funk by Shock, but most significant of these early releases was 1982's Don't Make Me Wait by the Peach Boys. This was no longer hinting at a new direction. It was unmistakably the real deal. DJed at the Paradise Garage by Peach Boys member Larry Levin, Don't Make Me Wait would quickly become a cult classic. Personally, I find these tracks interesting because you can hear how the sound is clearly post-disco and leading towards a new kind of synth-based dance music, but it also sounds like it's missing something, and maybe sounds closer to the 1970s than the 80s. Those missing elements are futuristic vocals, represented in electro by talk boxes, vocoders, and space-themed or futuristic lyrics, and instead of live drummers using drum machines, and one drum machine in particular, the Roland TR-808. In 1980, Roland released the TR-808 its first fully programmable drum machine. I say fully programmable because in 1978 Roland released its first programmable drum machine, the CR78, which was also the first drum machine to feature a microprocessor and user-controlled accents on specific beats. The TR808 improved upon the CR78 by having a better front panel for easier real-time programming, volume knobs for each individual voice, multiple audio outputs, and superior sounds which were created using analog circuits. Let's take a listen to the sounds of the TR-808. According to Roland president, Ikutaru Kakahashi, the step writing interface wasn't so new, but it was the first time that we paid more attention to the people who program in real time. It used to be that our customer was the home organ player, then people in the music industry started to pay attention to our rhythm machines. Such a musician was agreeable to programming by himself. That's why we developed a step writing system, so that you could slow the tempo down, enter your rhythm events, and then speed it up and hear the realistic rhythm pattern that you had just created. A Mr. Nakamura was responsible for the analog voice circuits and a Mr. Matsuoka developed the software of the drum machine. It was in production from 1980 until 1983 with a price tag of just under $1200, which was considered a good price at the time. The 808 initially received poor reviews, generally being deemed inferior to the Linn LM-1, the first drum machine that got its sounds from digital samples instead of analog circuits. The 808 was produced before MIDI was developed, but does feature a kind of precursor to MIDI referred to as DCB bus, which allows the 808 to be synced with other Roland gear. It was only after the 808 was out of production that it started to become popular among hip-hop and electronic artists, who could find older analog gear cheap. As a side note, when African Bombada and producer Arthur Baker recorded Planet Rock in late 1981, they couldn't afford to buy an 808 drum machine. They actually found an ad in the Village Voice, Man With Drum Machine $20 a Session, and told him to program the beat. Since then, the 808 has achieved almost legendary status as one of the most sought-after pieces of vintage gear among artists and collectors. Fans have named numerous tracks, and in the case of 808 State and 808 Mafia, even their group names after the iconic drum machine. According to Roland's website, the TR-808 has been used on more hit records than any other drum machine. Due to the high demand and low supply of the units, a lot of recent tracks that use the 808 sound are actually made from samplers or recreations of 808 sounds. Although these usually sound pretty close to the original, some producers claim that they never sound quite as good as the real thing. For instance, I remember hearing Lego Welt say in an interview that the emulations never get the clap sound quite right. Also since the machines were analog, differences between machines and even within the same machine in different environments can create fluctuations in the sound which give it more character than static samples. Just for fun, let's take a listen to a mashup of popular songs that use the 808 and see how many you could recognize. So far, most of the music we've listened to is made by African Americans in and around New York City. But Ride in Lagos, the first electro track to use the TR-808, was written in 1980 by Ryuichi Sakamoto, a member of the Japanese band Yellow Magic Orchestra. Let's take a listen. Ride and Lagos got some radio play on New York City stations where it was heard by hip-hop artists who had become electro pioneers. Here's what DJ Curtis Mantronic of the electro group Mantronics had to say about his influences. In the middle of listening to all this disco and hip-hop, along come Ryuichi Sakamoto with Ride and Lagos. It was totally off the wall. The disco stations were playing stuff like that in Yellow's Bostitch. They'd never do that today. That's why it was such a beautiful time. It was a very eclectic scene. A few years later, Art of Noise came along with Beatbox, and it was incredible. It was electronic, and yet it had real hip-hop flavor to it. That's when I started experimenting with machines and creating my own sound. African Bombata was also listening to Ride and Lagos and just about anything else he could get his hands on. In his words, I was really heavy into craftwork and Yellow Magic Orchestra, and I wanted to be the first black group to release a record with no band, just electronic instruments. He achieved that goal in 1982 with Planet Rock, with the help of producer Arthur Baker, keyboardist John Roby, and MC group SoulSonic Force, which consisted of Mr. Biggs, Globe, and Pow Wow. We heard a bit of it in the last episode, but let's play it again, listening to the sounds of the 808 and the rhythmic similarities with Riot and Lagos. Also listen for the Kraftwerk sequences from Trans Europe Express and Numbers, which apparently were interpolated by studio musicians rather than sampled from the recordings.
1: Party people, party people, can you get funky? suicide so silent, folks, can y'all get funky? The Zulu Nation, can you get funky? Yeah, just hit me. Just get the and hit me. Just get on down and hit me. That pump get so funky, hit me. Yeah.
0: African Bombata was born Kevin Donovan in 1957 and grew up in the Bronx River projects. He was raised by his mother, a nurse who was involved with the black cultural and liberation movements. As a youth, he became fascinated with the 1964 movie Zulu, a film that recounts the 1879 siege of Rourke's Drift in Natal, South Africa. The battle remains a celebrated moment in the military history of the British Empire an unlikely triumph of a hundred redcoats defending a lonely colonial outpost against an overwhelming onslaught of 4,000 Zulus. Rourke's Drift is remembered as something like the Queen's Fort Apache in Alamo where the whites actually won. In the climactic scene of the film, British soldiers stand with their bayonets arrayed silently before a pile of black bodies, a dark tide stopped at the very lip of their boots. When young Bambata saw the film in the early 60s, he was captivated by its powerful images of black solidarity, before the attack, hundreds of Zulu warriors appear atop the ridge, leaving the Imperial soldiers awestruck. They bang their spears to their shields, give a resounding war cry, and storm the garrison. That just blew my mind, Bambada says, because at that time we was coons, colored, Negroes, everything degrading. We was busy watching Hackle and Jackal, Tarzan, a white guy who's king of the jungle. Then I see this movie come out, showing Africans fighting for a land that was theirs against the British Imperialists. To see these black people fight for their freedom and their land just stuck in my mind. I said, when I would get older, I'm going to have me a group called the Zulu Nation. Bambada was drawn into gang life as inexorably as any young boy from Bronx River would have to be. His first gang was POWER, People's Organization for War and Energetic Revolutionaries, whose purpose was to protect Bronx River from being overrun by rival gang Black Spades. But escalating violence and police repression drove POWER's leaders underground. So Bambatta changed sides and became a black spade, and flipped Bronx River into spades territory. He had a reputation for being unafraid to cross turfs and forge relationships with other gangs. Eventually, he was promoted to warlord, responsible for building the ranks and expanding the turf of the spades. The spades soon moved into the projects of Harlem, Brooklyn, and Queens, and became New York City's biggest gang. Because Bambatta knew so many people from different gangs, any time there was a conflict, he would try to straighten it out through communication rather than violence. He later formed the Bronx River Organization. Their motto was, this is an organization. We are not a gang, we are a family. Do not start trouble. Let trouble come to you, then fight like hell. Violence between New York City's gangs escalated between 1968 and 1973, which contributed to their demise in 1974. Bambada puts it down to pressures from the city, drugs, and the reaction of women against the fighting among the men. When asked if he thought hip-hop killed New York's gangs, Bambata didn't subscribe to that theory. The women got tired of that shit, he replied, so brothers eventually started sliding out of that because they had people that got killed. In 1975, he had won a Housing Authority essay contest, the prize being a trip to Africa and Europe. For youth who had known nothing but the streets of the Bronx, the trip was life-changing. He said, I saw all the black people waking up in the early morning, opening their stores, doing the agriculture, doing whatever they have to do to keep the country happening. Compared to what you hear in America about black people can't do this and that, that really just changed my mind. Bambada came back to the Bronx bursting with ideas. My vision was to try to organize as many as I could to stop the violence. So I went around different areas telling them to join us and stop your fighting. In 1974, he founded the Zulu Nation, the first hip hop organization. His plan with the universal Zulu nation was to build a youth movement out of the creativity of a new generation of outcast youths with an authentic, liberating worldview. He also started calling himself African Bambada, adopting the name of the Zulu chief Bambada, who led an armed rebellion against unfair economic practices in early 20th century South Africa. He told people that his name was Zulu for affectionate leader. Bambada began to codify the ideas he had learned into a set of evolving beliefs known as the infinity lessons. The lessons established a fundamental code of conduct and broad directives to the zulu way of life they drew on black muslims evocation of a glorious original african past but not their impulse to racial shep- separation they leaned hard on the language of the nation of islam but disdained dogma and orthodoxy in 1977 donovan started DJing, inspired by dj Herc and other black spades who became djs he was known as the master of records due to his enormous and eclectic record collection Tommy Boy Records creator Tom Silverman recalls a Bambada set around 1979. Bambada was DJing, but a lot of the time he was just picking the records and giving them to Jazzy J or Red Alert, who were the two DJs that he had at the time. I heard him playing Kraftwerk. The invitations would say James Brown tribute, and it would say invited guest Kraftwerk. That was the first time I heard people actually rapping to these breakbeats. Most of the time it was just the beats going on and on, and there was no MC. Bambata would mix different things, like he used Mary Mary by The Monkees, The Big Beat by Billy Squire, just dun-da-dun-da-dun-da-duck. Dun, dun, dun. Jazzy J was more of a technician. Bambata was the master of records. He owned the records and could program the music. It was amazing. Bambata was also the founder of the Soul Sonic Force, which originally consisted of t- approximately 20 Zulu Nation members. The personnel for the Soul Sonic Force were groups within groups with whom he would perform and make records. He then began working with Paul Winley, a former doo wop singer, who released a few singles under Winley Records, including an apparent bootleg called Death Mix, which was released without Bambata's consent. Winley recorded two versions of Soul Sonic Force's landmark single, Zulu Nation Throwdown, with authorization from the musicians. Disappointed with the results of the single, Bambata left the company. Here's Jazzy Sensation, African Babata's first single for Tommy Boy Records, and the closest he would come to pure hip-hop during his studio career. The track is a remake of Gwen McCrae's Funky Sensation.
3: You will be a little bit. 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 You will be a
0: After Planet Rock came out in 1982, Bambata released Looking for the Perfect Beat with The Soul Sonic Force and Renegades of Funk, which were included on his very late first album Planet Rock, the album in 1986. He's since teamed up with various artists such as James Brown, Bill Laswell as Shango, and various ex-members of P-Funk, putting out remixes of different tracks including what seems like a 100 different remixes of Planet Rock. Here's a quick sample of Looking for the Perfect Beat. Gambatta is considered one of the three kings of hip-hop music, along with DJ cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash, and he's still active in promoting the Zulu nation and its philosophies. In 1982, the same year that Planet Rock was released, Warp Nine came out with their first single, Nunk, short for New Wave Funk. Warp Nine was a New York City-based group consisting of Lottie Golden and Richard Schur. Their sound is described as having gorgeous textures and multiple layers. Their second single, Light Years Away, which used live Latin percussion overdubs on top of the 808 beat, was a cornerstone of early 80s beatbox Afrofuturism and born of a science fiction revival. Light Years Away describes ancient alien visitation, partially inspired by The Message, by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and also pays homage to Sun Ra's film Space is the Place. Being a detroit native i have to mention cybotron formed in detroit in 1980 cybotron consisted of juan atkins and richard davis later joined by john housley the name cybotron is a portmanteau of cyborg and cyclotron although generally considered electro they went on to be techno pioneers here's a bit of their track alleys of your mind recorded in 1981 almost a year before planet rock That was Allies of Your Mind, recorded by Cybotron in 1981. You can definitely hear a strong craftwork influence. Alleys of Your Mind is also considered one of the first Techno tracks, but to me it sounds very Electro. The track was released under Cybotron's own Deep Space label, and they sold around 10,000 copies of Alleys of Your Mind, along with 10 to 15,000 copies of their second single, Cosmic Cars, through independent distributors. They were actually in New York trying to promote their band when Planet Rock hit the airwaves, and history declared African Bambata and the Sulsonic Force the inventors of Electro. Like Antonio Meucci and the patenting of the telephone, it's a story that shows ideas don't come from a vacuum and that it's important to be in the right place at the right time, at least as far as the history books are concerned. Here's Cybertron's most popular electro track, Clear, from
1: 1983. Ready? One, two, three, four...
0: That was Clear by Cybotron. You may recognize the arpeggiator sound from more recent tracks that have used it, like Poison Clan's Shake What Your Mama Gave Ya or Missy Elliott's Lose Control. That's it for part one of Electro Funk. I'm sure we'll discuss Juan Atkins in greater detail when we get to the episode on Detroit Techno, but there are a lot of Electro groups I'll need to talk about in part two. Uh, We'll also cover Electro's influence on other genres and play some more music. Hopefully that won't take too much more time to finish since I've got all the materials ready and just need to record it. We're also working on a new website, ahoem.org. I'm going to try to post the text of each new episode there, and this episode should be online now. You can see YouTube videos of each of the tracks played, along with a full reference list with links. One thing we need for the website, though, is a logo, so if you're a graphic designer and are interested, please let us know. Thanks for listening, everybody.